And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. My Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY, and the reason why I mention that off the top of just about every program is because that's where you'll see the updated, up to the minute, up to the hour, daily uh, stories that I'm talking about, uh, points that I'm making, uh, points that other people are making, and very important for every episode of Novak Now, you'll usually see the links to some of the longer form um, explanations of the things I'm talking about. So if I mention a story or I mention a piece of history you're, and you want to know more about it or you uh, maybe you want to check my facts, things like that, you'll see it on the Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY, and that's the best place to follow what I'm doing uh, at all times. I wanted to to dedicate this edition of Novak now to trying to dig down to what the real struggle is um, for Americans, for Jewish Americans, for Jews in Israel, for for really everybody who looks at news stories. I mean, I get, you know, you, you probably can imagine I get a lot of emails and direct messages and notifications from people asking for my take on an individual story of the day or something that's been going on for a few days and is always kept to that context of that story. What do I think about, for example, the recount efforts um, for the Trump campaign? What do I think about this issue in Israel? What do I think about what's going on here or what's going on there? And I find myself noticing on a number of occasions the fact that there's really a tremendous struggle, not so much between warring parties or people who are going after each other in a court case or people who are going after each other in election, but what is the constant struggle that I'm noticing more and more and more in everything from the things that you see in the news to personal relationships and, and stuff like that is the battle between optimism and pessimism. And this goes beyond just talking about people's personalities, the glass half full, glass half empty discussion. Not that I'm trying to dis, you know, discard the importance of those discussions. And for those of you who are listening who know something about people working with, with people who have personal struggles or they deal with depression or people who deal with for example, bipolar disorder, who kind of, you know, not another, it's kind of the fancier way of saying people who have very high highs and low lows. Um, the, that is an important part of, of our human development, trying to understand depre- things like depression, trying to understand things that get people emotionally on the other you know, side of the coin very you know, happier or feeling more confident and more, uh, more secure in their lives versus people who are depressed. And I think a lot of us know, even at a young age, that it doesn't have all that much to do all the time with the realities and the facts on the ground. In other words, we know of people who are very, very wealthy, who have physical health, who have physical health uh, and, and decent wealth or whatever you want to call it in their own families, and yet they are depressed. And people who are not well off, people who might have health a health problems, something like that, who are not clinically depressed and actually have a more optimistic attitude and 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 joy. Now, obviously, there are bad things that can happen to us that get us down. There are good things that can happen to us, real things that get us up, make us happy. But the the thing is, 
we know that the human brain for certain people uh, reacts differently to different things and that, you know, real depression are the kinds of things like people can't get out of bed in the morning. They, they have a chemical, a true chemical reaction in their body that makes doing things physically much harder to do, things like that. And I think, again, that, I find that to be an important discussion. I am very, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I truly admire the folks who work on this at, in a, on a professional level, whether they're just um, like school counselors or whether they're at the higher level of psychiatry. Um, I have a classmate from, from high school from the Yeshiva of Flappish who is now a very prominent psychiatrist at um, Columbia Presbyterian Medical School working with teenagers in depression, and, and he's doing some really important work there. So, you know, for, from, from that extremely high level all the way down to, to folks who might just be the kind of person who, who, who talks to, to kids or, or even adults at a, at a regular level, I have a lot of admiration for them, and I think it's an important you know, nut that we haven't cracked yet as, as a, a, you know, as a, as a, in the, in the human race. I think we really haven't quite figured out all of this yet. We've come up with some medications that work for a lot of people, but don't for others. We've come up with some therapies that work. We've certainly started to figure out scientifically what parts of the brain, you know, we don't know completely, but what parts of the brain are affected one way or the other by, by mood swings and things like that. So I think all of that is important. But what I want to talk about is how, there is a battle between positive, positivity and negativity that pervades everything that we talk about. Now, for the first example I want to give is I want to talk about, you know, news that's coming out of Israel, news that's coming out of the Mideast right now. And you've heard me say this before on Novak, now at least twice before in, in different um, editions of Novak now over the last year or so especially. I know I've said it at least twice, but I'll say it again now because this is very important. The news media in, in, the, in the United States is certainly very biased. But when people say it's biased, they usually mean it's biased along political lines, and it is. It's one of the top three biases of the news media. But I would actually put it at number three. There are two other biases that are stronger. So counting from number three going to number one, like we're doing American Bandstand here, number, th- number three bias that you see throughout most of the news media is a bias in favor of liberal or, in this case, Democratic Party politics in the United States and then liberal policies and politics throughout the world, depending on what party that is uh, in what country you happen to be in. It's a big one, but it's not one of the top two. The second most powerful news media bias that we see is the geographical bias. Uh, we see this a lot. For those of us who live in New York, we, we see it, but we may not realize it. If there's a story that affects the New York area, like a fire in a warehouse or something like that, the chances of that becoming a national story are very high. If the same sized warehouse with the same amount of casualties and the same amount of damage happens in Idaho, it's not going to get covered. <laughs> not by the national news media. You know, we won't hear about it. Um, and sometimes it's really something that is just incredibly large in its importance, that if it doesn't happen in the New York, Washington, L.A., maybe Chicago area, it's not going to get covered, even though it can be a inc- very, very important story. About two and a half years ago, that I have an example of, of one of those stories. Did you know, in May of 2018, did you know, that the factory that makes the most popular sold vehicle in the United States – the, the car truck SUV that sells the most in the United States is the Ford F-150 truck. It sells more than any other vehicle 
in the United States. Well, the factory that makes it in May 2018 burned to the ground. Now, this should have been a top story, certainly on the financial news uh, for days. It should have been a top story in regular news. It was, it was not really covered. It was covered as a local story kind of out of Detroit. And the other part of the story, and this I'll get to in a second, because this leads to the number one bias. The other part of the story that was not really very well covered, and I only found in a couple of places, and I think I was the only one to really write a major analysis slash editorial column about it, was the fact that a few people at Ford Motor Company heroically saved the vehicle by creating a system where they had key parts that they could no longer make in the Detroit area factory because it burned to the ground. They had a series of major jets flying to and from England to Detroit and back in a a, basically in a 24-7 constant loop to send them the parts and the things that they needed to basically get production going again as fast as possible, which is what happened. Hardly anybody noticed a delay in deliveries of Ford F-150s at any of the dealerships across the country. And they really saved their company. They saved the, the very, very large number of businesses, large and small, that rely on Ford F-150 trucks. That's, why, that's the reason, by the way, the Ford F-150 truck is the most sold vehicle in the United States. No, it's not an SUV. It's not a sports car. It's, not a, it's, it's, it's the Ford F-150. And the, the biggest reason why it is the number one selling vehicle is that so many businesses, I mean, if you are a construction worker, if you are and if you are a construction business, I mean, there's just so many businesses that rely on Ford F-150s, and they beat them up pretty good every year, which is why there's a lot of businesses that not only need Ford F-150s, but a lot of businesses that need to buy new ones every one or two years. Not that it's a, you know, because it's a great truck and it does really well, but some of these businesses really beat beat the heck out of these trucks. So that was a story that wasn't covered, even though, you know, it was just such a huge had a huge effect on the on the on the on the country. It could have had a major, you know, bad effect. And then that heroic part of the story that was really uplifting about how these guys came up with this ingenious but very difficult plan to keep the factory going for you know with a very minor delays relatively uh, was also not really covered. Again, it was covered in the local Detroit newspapers, but it was not really covered. The most of the country does not know what I'm talking about when I talk about that story even now. And that leads you to the number one bias. So, you know, again, number three bias is political bias toward, towards the left. The number two most common and pervasive bias is the geographical bias. And that leads us to the number one bias, which is the bias in favor of focusing on negative aspects of stories. So here we're getting back to the thing I wanted to focus on for this entire edition of Novak Now. The, 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 the battle royale in our society, in our culture, and certainly our media between negative, focusing on the negative and focusing on the positive. Now, the news media or any kind of entity that it's told us about the news since the history of the world, since I guess probably even the caveman times, has always been biased in favor of negative, sensational, frightening news because that's what gets people's attention. You know, the classic example that people give is that we don't get a report every time a jet lands safely at JFK Airport, but if one jet slides off the runway and causes... uh, a minor damage that's going to get a big that's going to get a big headline at that moment let alone a crash or something that doesn't you know that really doesn't go wrong you know god forbid so that is the kind of thing that makes sense from a human nature standpoint you know you don't even have to be a pessimist to understand why a frightening story or a story of carnage or you know any any kind of negative story would get a little bit more attention because that is something that 
sort of it, it, it elicits a human reaction a little bit more than even a good news story because if things are good we and it doesn't force us to feel sad about something or even or if it doesn't force us to cheer for it then you know we we don't respond as much now think about that if you hear about somebody who has had a great success in their career there's a little bit of pressure on us to say congratulations to that person if we actually see them. But if we don't see them and don't know them personally, there's, there's really no social pressure to say like, wow, I feel great for that guy. But if somebody tells you about someone that you also don't know who sadly may have passed away or had a terrible sickness, there's a tremendous social pressure on us to say, oh, we feel really bad. About, you know, I feel bad about this person. I feel bad that that, that that happened, even though we didn't know him or her. So again, these are all human nature things that make sense. But I want to talk about how this bias in favor of the negative side of stories or negative stories, just negative stories, has started to take over more than just the way headlines are published and more than just what kind of news gets, gets watched and gets, and, and gets pursued. Because it goes beyond that. Now, I want to start by talking about how this fits into the context of the, the presidency of, of, of Donald Trump. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with all these challenges in the election. I, I think I've mentioned in previous editions of Novak now that I believe that this will probably come down to the courts, and I don't believe the courts will have the courage to overturn the election no matter how much evidence is presented to them. In fact, if I had to guess, if I had to guess the the clerks working for especially Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, are probably working on an opinion that will thread the needle, in their, in their opinion, will thread a very difficult needle where they basically say, yes, X, Y, and Z uh, instances of voter fraud or, 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 or problems with the vote uh, are real. They really happen and they're a problem and they should be outlawed. But we are not going to overturn the election because of them. And that's, now, that's a tough needle to thread because it's basically admitting, you know, they're going to have to find a way to, to stop this voter fraud, to stop the chicanery of vote by mail, to stop the, I think, outright illegality of ballot harvesting. These are all things that I've explained in previous editions of Novak Now, and you can find them on the archive page on the Nachum Siegel Network homepage. You go to show archives, you'll be able to find them. Um, where I talk about things like ballot harvesting and I talk about the vote by mail problem. But... And I think that both of those really need to be outlawed. Uh, again, with, with very, very few exceptions. If you are a complete invalid, if there are other issues, I think you should be allowed to, to vote absentee and you should be allowed to vote by, by mail. But this should be fewer than a couple hundred thousand people in America all over the country, let alone in any given state, who really should be given an easy path towards voting this way. We really need to have in-person voting in this country. We really, and, I, and I'm willing to, by the way, um, give some concessions on that. For example, if people really feel like it's difficult to vote physically in this country, then let's have weekend voting so that all Saturday and all of Sunday, for example, people who observe Shabbat or, or people who don't want to go on Sunday, that they'll always have an opportunity. So, so, so for those who observe, for example, you know, Sabbath on Saturday, for those who don't want to go on Sunday, there'll be an opportunity. And then these are two days when people are, are much less likely to be having to be at work and they can get, uh, they can get, they can vote. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to go off on a tangent there, but what I'm trying to say simply is that 
that is one issue that we're having in this country that has to be looked at. So I, I don't know what's going to happen with this. But what I so, you know, again, I, I don't want to go into the, the future of, of this vote count too much more because I've done that in previous editions of Novak Now. But what I want to talk about is the unique aspect of Donald Trump's presidency. Now, there are a lot of people listening who just personally did not like him on a personal level. They didn't like like him on a personal level. But one of the things that I think triggered some folks about Donald Trump is that he really presented an anything is possible. The way we've been doing things is too pessimistic outlook on his presidency. And that was one of the things that I liked the most about him. You know, if, if there were Democrats and people who I don't agree with policy wise who came out and said, listen, the policies that even my party have been pursuing for a long time don't work. I want to try something different to achieve X, Y, or Z, I, they would get a pretty good, uh, you know, uh, I would give them a pretty good amount of time to, to convince me that they can do it because that's the kind of thing that I think is an important statement to make in our forever battle in the world between pessimism and optimism. There was a treme- there's a tremendous optimism about Donald Trump and it came off very often, and this, you know, you can blame him for it or you can decide who you want to blame for it. It came off very often about as personal boasting, like, well, I was able to achieve X, Y, and Z. I was able, I, 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 I get it. I can understand why that would bother, bother somebody. But, you know, we, we've already, we're well past the stage in American history where good things and bad things that happen during a presidency are going to be blamed on the president anyway. So for a president to say, I did this X, Y, and Z, <laughs> if it's good, it's, it's one of those things like, well, that's kind of the way things work, folks. We, we're going to blame the president when bad things happen during the, his presidency, whether it's his fault or not, and vice versa. And vice versa. So, folks, that, that's, an important, that's an important thing to remember when we talk about optimism and pep- pessimism. And President Trump said the way that we've been doing things, for example, in the Middle East, not moving the embassy to Jerusalem, continuing to pay – in some ways, this is a much more important thing than moving the embassy to Jerusalem – continuing to pay uh, money to the Palestinian Authority, which we know is being used for terror or to reward terrorism – or to build, help build tunnels or whatever, you know, that money is used for. It's not, it's not done for human, you know, humanitarian causes don't get much of that money. So we stopped that. We, we know that remaining at, at the certain troop levels that we had in Afghanistan wasn't really doing much. These are important things that were, that were important that we finally had someone coming in and he wasn't doing it from a negative point of view. He was doing it from a positive point of view, thinking, well, we can do something differently here. We can do something differently here. For years, economists and people like even me had believed that there was no such thing as a policy that could do what was what some people call trickle-up economy. In other words, there were people who did not think that as much as it sounds great to give the lower middle class and maybe even poorer people more money or more of their own money, that that would really improve the overall economy. It's been that belief for a long time that only by giving richer people more money could you do that that eventually they'll start spending more and they will help the economy. And I think that's true. It does actually help the economy when the rich are, when the rich are allowed to keep more of their money, they're more likely to spend more of it, and that means more jobs and more investment. But Donald Trump, and so Donald Trump with the tax plan did a little bit of that, right? There was some corporate tax breaks that really helped, and that really did spur investment in the country and really did spur jobs. But what also spurred jobs and what also spurred a strong amount of the economy was something that Donald Trump did in the tax law that a lot of people don't know about because they didn't bother to read past the first couple of paragraphs bashing the corporate tax breaks, 
is that he doubled the standard deduction for folks who really were lower middle class mostly. Now, for those of us who live in New York or D.C. or high tax areas where we have very high expensive real estate costs, you know, our homes and our apartments are expensive here in New York and our mortgages are very high and we get this big deduction for our mortgage interest and we get deductions for our state and local taxes. For, we, we always itemize our tax returns because if you really want to lower your tax bill, you've got to make sure you take all those deductions. Well, if you're a lower middle class guy or gal in the middle of the country, most likely, or in the South, uh, maybe not owning your home, but if you do own your home, it's the mortgage is small and the mortgage interest is small. It often, for many years, has not made any sense to itemize your tax returns. You would just take the standard deduction that, that everyone gets, and that's the best you could do. Well, the Trump tax plan doubled the standard deduction, and it caused a trickle-up economic effect. People who for years could not itemize their taxes because it just didn't make any sense for them to do that. If they had done that, they would have ended up paying more taxes in the end. Got a huge tax break. They got a huge tax break. When was the last time you saw anyone in the news media acknowledge that? Now, part of that was the hatred of Donald Trump. Part of that was the number three bias, the political bias. He was not a a liberal Democrat, so they weren't going to be favorable to him. But I think a big part of it was also the number one bias, which is the focus on negativity. If there's a negative aspect or a controversial aspect of any policy, especially a Trump policy, that's what's going to get the attention. Not the doubling of the standard deduction for lower middle class employed people who've been struggling for a long time, who haven't had the advantages of the tax laws under any administration, Republican or Democrat, forever. And President Trump got that done. And again, that came from... Not just because I think it was a smarter policy. I think it was done because of, again, a little bit more optimism, a belief that helping those folks out, even though they're not the poorest people, and even though they're not the kind of people who could trigger a massive economic change with a snap of their fingers because now they have a billion more dollars in their pocket, but there was an understanding that if you help those folks keep a little bit more of their money, in some cases a lot more of their money, it will help the economy on a grand scale, and it did. It was one of the reasons for that. I can talk about a lot of other policies. And again, I think the Middle East policy that President Trump pursued was an incredibly optimistic um, look at things, especially the idea that the the very enduring idea, which sadly, if there's a Biden administration, appears will be making a comeback, this negative pessimistic view that there's nothing that can be done in the Middle East because the Israelis and the Palestinians haven't settled their issues. And so it's not worth thinking on a grander scale about wider peace in the region. That is what both Republican and Democrat administrations in this country for many decades have believed. I've always believed that was bunk. Well, the optimistic Trump administration also believed that was bunk, and they pursued peace agreements beyond the Israeli-Palestinian issue, even, even though they tried to address it, and they, and they still are in many ways. But they realized that that isn't that this, that isn't this incredible roadblock, this pessimistic boulder in front of the in front of the the exit to the to, to the cave that the John Kerrys and and so many other people have believed in for a long time, and they they just decided that that wasn't true because they took a more optimistic approach. Now, again, I can talk about the the battle between optimism and pessimism, and how pessimism and negativity wins in the news media for a long time. And sadly, sadly, it's true. I could talk about it for a long time. It really dominates everything. Just take a look at the ratings of your financial news networks on days when the market is selling off. They're always higher than on days when the market is much higher. 
people, the fear of what's going on, people will turn on that television more. When I was working in financial news on a day-to-day basis, the news directors at the networks I worked at openly used to tell us in meetings, I, can't, I really hope there's a big sell-off today because then we'll get better ratings. I mean, that, that is not even a, a disputed. Everyone knows that's kind of what they look for. But again, I can talk about it all, all day when I talk about the news media. But it goes beyond the news media. It goes into our entertainment media, and it goes into the way that we think about things in our lives. And, the, and, the, and I think the cynical way that folks who are trying to make a buck go about their, go about their business. Uh, I want to ask you a, a question just to think about just for a moment. When was the last time you watched a movie or, or that was a comedy or a drama that wasn't science fiction or fantasy? I'm talking about just, you know, a, 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 it could be a drama about just a, a, a medical show. It could be a legal show. It could be a show about a family. It could be a sitcom about a family. When was the last time that a central part of that show wasn't men behaving badly? In fact, I think there was a, there was a movie or a television show called Men Behaving Badly. But when was the last time a major aspect of the program wasn't husband doing something dumb or husband doing something bad, men doing something bad either to women or to other people? And sometimes it's sort of a lovable type of guy, like in a movie like Uncle Buck, where the late John Candy is kind of a schmendrick. He doesn't know how to live his life. He's kind of messed up. Suddenly he has to help look after his niece and nephew. And after a couple of funny bumps in the road, he steps up to the plate and he gets his life together. Sometimes that's the, the, the place that, that this goes. You know, it starts off with the you know, guy behaving badly, inept male, can't do the job right. And then, he, and, and then he, and sometimes it just takes this great turn where he sort of steps up. Great. But a lot of the time it goes the other way. He's, a, a, a guy is in a bad place or a guy seems to be in a good place, and he just continues either being bad like we, like we thought he was in the beginning or he gets worse than, he, than we even thought, and it's, it's, it's husbands and men behaving badly. You know, if you're ever, if you're, if you're a husband, for example, you, you'll notice this a little bit more. If you're a husband who happens to be getting into a dispute or having a problem, you know, with your wife, you know, God forbid this happens to you, but it does happen. Hopefully it's just minor and takes a short amount of time to resolve itself. And then maybe just to, to take your minds off of you, sit down and watch TV and then, and then you see, oh my gosh, every single show that we're watching now is about a bad husband. It doesn't really make you things, you know, make you feel very good about yourself. It's not a great way to take your mind off of that, uh, off of that. And I think, where does that come from? Does it come from the fact that the people who make these programs and these TV shows and movies hate men? I, I don't think so. I think it comes from something that I learned when I was in journalism school. I guess I kind of knew it even before I was in journalism school, but I had a couple of people in my journalism school who were very, very good about just nailing things down to the brass tacks, just telling us exactly how, how, the, how the sausage was, was made and how money was made in the business. And one of the things they really drilled into me, and this was 25, 30 years ago, but one of the things they used to really drill into me and my classmates was that at any given time, the, the majority of the people watching TV, the majority of the people watching movies are women. And sometimes it's a small majority. Sometimes it's 52% to 48% women to men. But the typical percentage they used to tell us was, it was basically 54% women is the average to 46% men. And then there are some programs where there's an even bigger difference, but that was really the average number. And they said that is why so much of the television programming you see is geared towards women because more, more women are watching. And I think the cynical, pessimistic, negative 
thought that a lot of people who are producing these shows now and then and in the past was well what do women want to see oh they want to see something that really makes men look bad and makes them feel better by comparison now i don't think that that actually makes women feel better but i think that's what people in tv and the movies have thought for a long time and maybe one or two of you can come up with some examples to to you know maybe some exceptions to prove the rule my my exception to prove the rule is the 1980 oscar best picture winner ordinary people and I don't want to give away too much of that movie, but I think that movie is incredibly unique because here you have a movie where actually the, the, the wife, the, the mom, is the bad guy. And that kind of holds up. It's kind of an incredible – I don't know how they got that movie made. But the point is this is an example yet again, even in our entertainment media, of negativity dominating. And we've got to push, pack, push beyond that. I don't think it actually in the long run makes money, and I certainly don't think it makes people feel better. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.